Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here, and I'm super excited to start discussing the the redemption of the world. The Jews leaving Mitzrayim, Egypt, and the Zohar says that all future redemptions are based on this redemption, which means that the DNA, the, the blueprint of, of every redemption is, is contained within this. So, so you can't go wrong. We're, we're really tapping into the DNA of this. And you'll see as we start to dig into the details of Hashem charging Moshe with this amazing mission at the burning bush, which we're going to explore in, in, I think, very new and amazing ways, that everything is also going to echo back to the Garden of Eden. Because where do all exiles start when we eat from the tree of knowledge and listen to the snake instead of eating from the tree of life? Okay, so, so you've got like these kind of echoes, echoes going on right now. It's the story right now, the events are taking place in Egypt, but they're echoing back to the beginning of creation. And you've got good and evil playing out here. Remember, there's only one power in the world. All that exists is God, but God creates this environment where he conceals himself and allows us to have free choice so that we can choose good over bad. But we have to make that choice, that proper choice. Otherwise, God, who's here and never leaves and is fully present, becomes increasingly concealed. So, so that's what Mitzrayim is all about. Cut to thousands of years later, God is very concealed. The Jews are enslaved. This mad dictator... Pharaoh is oppressing everyone. You know, it's, it's miserable. We're about to actually disappear as a people. It says that if Moshe came one moment later, the Jewish people wouldn't have been able to be rescued at all. And one of the deepest things I ever heard in my life is, why not? And the answer is because they wouldn't know that there was something to be redeemed from. Can you imagine? There's a level of exile which is so deep that you don't even know that you're in exile anymore. And so when someone comes to save you, you go, why are you saving me? What is there to be saved from? You don't even know anymore that there's an alternative to the slavery that you're in. So the Jews are right on the precipice of ultimate concealment. And that's where the story starts, okay? And remember... Not only is this echoing back to the beginning of time, right? To the beginning of humanity. The Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and the snake and the tree of knowledge and the tree of life and all those competing forces, right? But all of this is also the DNA for Egypt and the Messianic redemption. So you've got three major events playing themselves out almost simultaneously here. So it's, it can't be more epic than this in terms of the full scope of the drama of creation and the narrative of what it means to be a human being 
and, and someone who's, who's really trying to do the right thing in this world and, and wants to know, how can I do the right thing in this world? I want truth. I want truth. So, so this is just the most beautiful way to start, okay? And the birth of Moshe begins in a very surprising way. The Torah tells us that, I'm going to read you the, I'll read you the verse here. It says, and this is in, in this new book that we're reading from now, the book of Shmos, which means names, although in English it's called Exodus. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now this is now talking about the birth of Moshe. Now listen carefully, because it's very surprising, the way, the way it's described. A man of the house of Levi, that's one of the tribes of Israel, went and married Levi's daughter. The woman became pregnant and had a son. She realized, okay, and then it goes on, she realized how extraordinary the child was and kept him, kept him hidden for three months. Okay, but the, the, real, the real verse here is, is that first one. A man of the house of Levi went and married Levi's daughter. Now, what's extraordinary about that is no names are being mentioned. And then it continues. The woman became pregnant and had a son. Again, no, no indication of, of the name Moshe here. So isn't that interesting? It, this is not just a man of the house of Levi. This is Amram, who is the head of the entire Jewish people. Do you understand? Like, Amram deserves a mention, don't you think? I mean, he's literally the head of the entire Jewish people in Egypt. So it's very striking that his name is not mentioned. And how about his wife, right? I mean, Yocheved, this is the, the mother of the, the, the greatest person that ever lived. She deserves a mention, don't you think? No mention. Okay, and then, and, a, and they gave birth to a son. Who? No mention. Okay, so why is God, who wrote the Torah, being so emphatically anonymous here in terms of who these personages are? So you can, you can say many things. You can say many things. W one idea that I heard that I thought was striking was that if it said that born to Amram, meaning born to the head of the entire Jewish people, was, was Moshe, you would think, well, you know, Moshe became great because, you know, look who he came from. He came from the, you know, the, the leader of the generation. And, and yet we, we know that Moshe became Moshe because Moshe was like worked really hard. He worked really, really hard at just being the, the, the greatest possible, purest, most humble, holiest person that he could be. So, so in a way, leaving out Ram's name is, is a way of saying that, you know, you have something, you see, in, in, we have something called yichas. Yichas means lineage. And if you are descended from lineage, your, your soul gets a boost, basically. You've got kind of like a, a, a better shot at really maybe fulfilling your mission in life or becoming holy yourself. 
But at the same time, though, lineage is, is it's good, but it, it's not, it's not going to answer everything. In fact, if you don't make something out of yourself, it's going to answer nothing. So, so the way they think of, they, they describe lineage is it's like a string of zeros. If, if you don't make anything out of yourself, then you're just a zero. But if you make something out of yourself, then you're a one in front of a string of zeros. In other words, ah, that, that's something, you know, now, now you're getting places. But, but that's called yichas atzmo, meaning you have to make something out of yourself. And when you make out of something out of yourself, then all of a sudden you become a vessel for, you know, all the holy energy from, from your fathers and mothers before you can, can flow into you in a very strong way. But, but first, you have to make something out of yourself. So that message is being conveyed on one level here. You don't want to mention the name of, of the dad because maybe it's going to diminish the accomplishment of Moshe. Okay, that's good. But we don't mention Moshe's name either. <laughs> okay. So now we get back to our initial question, which is no names are being mentioned. And that is very deliberate. And I'm going to tell you a Torah that I heard that I love. I heard this from Rabbi Simcha Weinberg. He said the following, do you know why no one's name is being mentioned here? Because God was going to bring the redemption no matter what. It wasn't contingent on anyone. God was going to do it no matter what. And, you know, if you think about this, it's a little bit reminiscent of what Mordechai says to Esther. You know, at the, the crucial time when, when Esther has to go before the king, and of course there was this royal decree enforced by the death penalty, which is that anyone who goes unannounced to the king will be killed on the spot. And Mordechai says, no, you've got to go in right now. And Esther's like, you know, this decree is not going to take place for another 11 months. Right now, it was the, the month of Nisan. It wasn't going to be till the month of Adar. It's a full 11 months away. He's going to call me in in the next 30 days. What's the hurry? And Mordechai is like, you have to go in right now. And, you know, there's a Mida Keneged Mida thing going on right there. Sort of like this balancing of energies. In other words, there's this death penalty on the entire Jewish people. And Mordechai was saying, if, you're not, if you are not going to counteract that by risking your own life, you cannot unseat the death penalty on the Jewish people. In other words, do you understand how, that's, how only being able to risk your own life can undo a death penalty? That was the, that was the spiritual physics of it, if you will that Mordechai was instructing Esther about. That's why, by the way, you know, a lot of people do good things. But let me just emphasize to you, there's a very, very big difference between doing a good thing and doing a very good thing immediately. Because you don't want to do it immediately. That's the point. Your Sahara, your evil inclination, negative side kicks in and says, ah, it can wait, I'll do it. It can wait, it can wait. But you have to understand that the mitzvah that you then do after you wait doesn't have the same G-force, if you will, the same that it does if you do it right away, precisely because you don't want to do it at that point. In other words, you're unseating negative energy and you're blasting through that and therefore you're bringing more light into the world. Okay, but what Mordechai says to Esther is, okay, you want to wait? You want to wait? 
fine. But you should know the following thing. Even if you don't go in at all, God is going to save the Jewish people one way or the other. You have this opportunity right now. It can be through you. And that's precisely why you're in the king's palace, by the way. That's why the king married you. In order for you to do this this moment. But either way, God is going to save the Jewish people and it'll be someone else. And Esther then just goes into like leadership mode. This is really where the power shifts from like Esther, from Mordecai to Esther. And Esther all of a sudden starts calling the shots. And she says, okay, I'm going to go in, have the entire Jewish people fast for me for three days. Okay, so that, this is amazing. And then everyone fasts for her. And that's over Pesach, by the way. During the Pesach Seders that year, they were fasting, which is amazing. And Esther goes in unannounced and the king has mercy on her and doesn't kill her, right? Which was a big miracle. Anyway, what's the point? Here we are at the redemption of the Jews from Egypt. And it says, a man of the house of Levi went and married Levi's daughter. The woman became pregnant and had a son. No names, no names. Do you know why? Because God is going to do it no matter what. Maybe it will be them. Maybe it's going to be someone else. But God is going to do it. Because when the time of the redemption comes, God does it. That, that's all there is to it. Now, there is a divine partnership. How it happens, does it happen in a smooth way? Does it happen in an apocalyptic way? That's actually up to us. And we're going to get into more of the details here. You're going to see, in fact, when Moshe goes to Egypt and begins this amazing, you know, the, the, the process of the redemption, it says that he saddled the donkey. Not a donkey. It says he saddled the donkey. Now, which donkey? So the Medrash says something phenomenal. That when God told Avraham, Avinu, Abraham, to put Yitzchak on the altar, which, which, he, which God understood Avraham would mean to sacrifice Yitzchak, although God never actually said that, but that was the nature of the test, that Avraham should think that that's what he's being asked. Will he do what he thinks God is being asked, is being asked of him? And, of course, Avraham did. This is the, the Akedah. And Avraham wakes up, doesn't just do it, doesn't just do it right away, wakes up early, and even though he's, you know, one of the richest people in the world, he's got many people who will saddle his donkey, he wakes up early and saddles his donkey himself in order to be able to do the will of God with full strength as fast as he can. So when Moshe goes to Egypt. This is after the burning bush. It says he saddles the donkey, and the commentators say he saddled that same donkey. <laughs> and then you ready for this? It says that Mashiach will be riding on a donkey. And the commentators, the Medrash says, it's going to be that same donkey that Moshe rode to Egypt and that Abraham rode to do the Akedah. 
Now, this is very deep. Was it act, is it actually going to be the same physical animal? Is this animal alive for thousands and thousands of years? Okay, the point is, on a deeper level, remember, we're going to explore many Midrashim today. All Midrashim are true. Now, how they're true depends on the Midrash. Meaning to say, is, is there this phenomenally old donkey which is miraculously being kept and, you know, alive and in good shape by God? Could be, you know, God can do anything's possible. Or does it mean something else? Is there a truth being expressed in this medrash which means something else? But every medrash is true. It's just a question on what level of truth is it operating on? So in terms of the donkey, let's explore something a little bit deeper. So, so the Maharal points out the word, that the word for donkey and the word for physicality, chamor is donkey, chomer, same word, is physicality, materiality, chomer. He will be riding atop a donkey. In other words, do you know what all three of these situations have in common? It's that they are mastering the challenges of this world where God is concealed. This physical world is not getting the best of them. They are riding atop of it. They are mastering chomer, physical substance. And that is like, that is the express lane to the redemption. And that's why that's what Avraham is doing that's what Moshe is doing, and that's what Mashiach will be doing in the version where we flow into the Messianic era, meaning to say that when we have that capability, when we access the mitzvahs and we just harmonize ourselves with the universe and God's will, we also will be astride the donkey. We also will be mastering the challenges of this world. And when we do that, we flow into the next era, and it doesn't come down in this crazy, abrupt, you know, very destructive way, like the War of Gulgumagog, which doesn't have to happen. Remember, one of the foundations of Torah is every positive prophecy must occur. No negative prophecy has to occur. In other words, if we're on the level, it doesn't have to happen in a negative way. Or, as I always like to quote, from the cop shows, we can do this the hard way or we can do this the easy way. And if we align ourselves with the Torah, we get to do it the easy way. We get to ride into the next era, astride the donkey, mastering Chomer as masters of the challenges of this world. And then we glide right into the next era. Okay, so now let's backtrack a little bit because now that we know that God says the redemption is going to happen no matter what, and that's on a very deep level why no names are being mentioned. Now let's go to this, the turning point where the redemption really begins, which is at the burning bush. Now, the burning bush is, 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 is phenomenally deep. It's phenomenally, phenomenally, phenomenally deep. What's going on here? I... I I was just learning in the in the Pischei Sharim by Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver 
very, very deep things that were going on there that I never just had any concept of before. And you'll see how it's all going to tie together in an amazing way. So, so the burning bush, let's do burning bush 101 before we start to get into the, the depths of it. Okay, because there's, there's a lot here. First thing you have to know is that it was totally miraculous, this, this vision. And I didn't understand it or fully appreciate the visual of it, so to speak, until I saw this one detail in one of the commentaries, which was that you have this thorn bush, right, with leaves, engulfed in flames, but it's not on fire. Okay? See, I always thought that it was kind of like burning, but somehow it wasn't disintegrating. But that's just it. It wasn't burning. All right? Now, here's the detail. Imagine this bush with green leaves, and now imagine it completely engulfed in flames, and the green leaves remain bright green. <laughs> that's the key to the visualization. All right, it's the idea that, wait a second, what, what is going on here? This thing is not even in fire, on fire at all, as it is engulfed in flames. Okay, so now, next thing to know. Many people saw it and walked by it without stopping. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Is that, and here it is, like, God is waiting to speak, is waiting to speak right there. And people are just walking by, walking by, not taking a second look. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? What does that say about us today? Moshe is different. Moshe sees it and goes, what is going on? And he comes toward it. And then God says to him, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. And can't get into, can't get into the Pischei Sharem yet before I tell you just what Rav Matas Yahu Solomon says, because it's just one of my all-time favorite thoughts. He asks a question, why didn't God tell Moshe to take off his shoes before he stood on holy ground. In other words, why did God wait for him to do something wrong and then correct him? Why? Because the ground wasn't holy yet until Moshe stood on it. Not because Moshe was just this walking tower of holiness and whatever he touched, you know, he was like the you know, the Jewish Midas, whatever he touched, turned to gold. Now he's standing on this ground, so it's holy. That is not it. Zero. No, not it. What made it holy? So Rabbi Solomon says, Moshe's quest for the truth. Moshe saw something and he, he, he understood that there was something miraculous going on and that this was a gateway for him to draw closer to God and to understand the world better and reality better and his mission in life better. 
and to connect to God in a deeper and more beautiful way. And that desire drew him close, and that desire made the ground holy. Do you understand? Do you understand what it is? That when we search for the truth, we ourselves emit a holy energy that elevates and transforms everything around us, even the ground. So Moshe takes off his shoes. And now, let's plunge into the depths. What was going on in terms of this fire? And so Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says, there's a fire above and a fire below. The fire above is the Torah. That's the Torah of Mount Sinai. And, you know, I'm, I'm just shocked and amazed that not every single person in the world knows this following fact, because you can't understand anything about this whole story unless you know this fact right now. Remember, this is the beginning of the whole redemption right now. The burning bush was at Mount Sinai. The Torah itself says it. It was at Horeb. Horeb is one of the names for Sinai. And God says to Moshe, take the Jews out of Egypt and bring them back here. In other words, the entire taking the Jews out of Egypt was in order to bring them to Mount Sinai to receive the Torah. Now again, there's a fire above. Remember, when the Torah was given, it said, it, the Torah says that a fire burned in the heart of heaven. A fire burned in the heart of heaven. Okay, that is, that is the Torah itself. And there's a fire below. That's the fire of Gehenna. There's a fire that burns, and there's a fire that doesn't burn at all. The fire of the Torah, the fire of the Torah of heaven, doesn't burn at all. Amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Now we've got to go deeper still. You see, fire correlates with the attribute of Gevura. So, what is Gevura? Gevura is power. But right now, you have to understand something. One of the ways, there are different ways to diagnose the exile, okay? You can say that we're hating each other for no reason. That's, that's a very accurate diagnosis of the, of the exile that we're in right now. People hating each other for for no reason. Okay, that's on the interpersonal level. But what if we want to look at on the energy level? Like, what, what, what would the reason be, the diagnosis for the exile on the energy level? And what our Kabbalists tell us is that basically this quality of Gevura is completely broken and out of whack. Okay, we've got way too much gvura, too much fire from below, burning. Okay, and again, we're talking about it on an energy level, but there's this anger, this, this jealousy, this hatred, this 
taiva, blood, lust, desire, like all these fiery emotions that are not in harmony. And this is on an energy level, the fire that burns and the fire below. But now listen to this. The fire above, which is the Torah, harmonizes the fire below. The fire above is a fire that doesn't burn. And so what God was showing Moshe by the burning bush was the fire above, was the fire of Torah, of the energy of Torah, which can come down into this world. And you see, this bush, which should not even exist anymore, it should already be obliterated by the flames, hasn't been touched at all. The green leaves are still bright green because this is a fire that doesn't burn. And in the end of days, what we're working toward, what the, what the mitzvahs of the Torah are working toward, is that that fire that's come down, that came down at Mount Sinai, that that fire which is still sort of healing the world will ultimately neutralize the fire below, and that the mida, this attribute of gvura, right, this out-of-whack energy of power and energy and emotion and everything like that will become harmonized. And when gvura becomes harmonized, that's another way of visualizing and articulating the redemption of the world. And the way that we do that is we call it sweetening the din. We bring chesed into gvura. Chesed is kindness. We, we, we do kindness. The mitzvahs are chesed. When we do acts of loving kindness for each other, that's chesed. All of that chesed, all of that kindness neutralizes and puts out the fire of this, uh, the fires of this world. You know, we did a breathing exercise a few, uh, a few weeks ago. And the idea is that as you breathe in deeply through your lungs, you're taking in mayim, water, you're taking in chesed, and it's going through your heart, down below to your kidney, to your liver, rather, which is the place of gavura, the place of fire. And that air that you're breathing in is putting out the gavura, it's sweetening it with chesed, and that mayim that you're breathing in is putting out the fires inside yourself as well. Because remember, when you fix yourself, you fix the world. Because each one of us is a microcosm, is a miniature of the universe. So we need to be in balance as well. So all of these things that I'm talking about on a macrocosmic level are also operating within ourselves as well. And breathing, deep breathing, and having this kavana, this holy intention that you're breathing in chesed, which is putting out, sweetening the gavura, and that you're breathing in mayim, which is putting out the fire, is, is one way to keep yourself in divine balance. Okay. So now let's go back to the burning bush. So what Hashem is communicating to Moshe is that you are going to take the Jews out of Egypt 
and you're going to bring them back here, and that this, that this holy energy of Gvura is going to become neutralized, and that this story is going to play out right now. All right. Now, now let's go deeper. The Talmud says that this conversation between Moshe and God, between God and Moshe, took place over a period of seven days. Now that's astonishing, because if you actually read it in the Torah, it's, it's, it's just a, a few lines. So, so God is telling Moshe, over a period of seven days, come on, you gotta, are, you, are you signing on to the mission? You've got to sign on to the mission. Are you doing this? And Moshe's like, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm not the person to do this. Send someone else. And on one level, that is fantastic. I heard Rip Shlomo say one time that, do you think if Moshe said, oh, I'm your guy, God, like, where, where you been? Let's go, let's do this. That Moshe would have been the one. In other words, a sign that he was the one was that he said, I'm not the one. But then, then comes the process where you have to go, okay, but if you're telling me that I'm the one, then I am the one. And God wanted Moshe to get to that second stage faster than Moshe did. And amazingly, because Moshe took so long to finally agree, he doesn't become the Kohen Gadol, the high priest of Israel. Rather, it goes to Aaron. That's one of the consequences. It's one of the consequences that happens because, because Moshe delays as long as he does. Now, now we have to go deeper. Because you could say it's just Moshe's phenomenal modesty, and it wasn't a joke, because God himself testifies that Moshe is the humblest person that ever lived. But it was more than that. And I'm going to show you now, in the, in the Pesukim itself, some, some amazing things. Moshe, according to the commentators, the deep commentators, was actually arguing with God. And the argument was, God, this has to be the final redemption. This can't be one stage along the line to the ultimate redemption. This has to be the final redemption. And where do we actually see that in the, in the, in the words of the Torah itself? Because that's not, that's not explicit. That back and forth is not explicit, but it is here. And, and let me tell you where. And I'll tell you God's answer back to him too, which is also amazing. Moshe asks a great question. He says, everyone's going to ask me, what is the name of the God who sent you? Like, who sent you? Because remember, Moshe has been gone for decades from, from, from Egypt. And he's showing up and all of a sudden he's saying, you know, God sent me to save you all. You know, they're, they're going to want proof. And in fact, in Hilchos Malachim, the laws of kings, the, the Rambam, Maimonides, 
actually makes a checklist of all of the attributes that a person has to have if he is actually the Messiah. So, so someone can't just claim, you know, just, I'm the Messiah, God talked to me. It's like, you know, brother, <laughs> I love you, <laughs> but you're not the Messiah. But I am the Messiah. Okay, let's open up the Rambam. <laughs> and you'll see there is a very thorough checklist that has to be met for someone to be the Messiah. So we don't just like accept someone saying they're the Messiah. I remember, for, for better or for worse, this is a, you know, a psychological condition. You know, there's certain psychological conditions. There's something called, by the way, Jerusalem syndrome. This is a documented thing. What is Jerusalem syndrome? People visit Jerusalem and they flip out and they run naked in the streets and they start prophesying. Right? This is this is a real thing. This has been documented. It's called Jerusalem syndrome. Another related, you know, psychological malady is people think they're the Messiah. And, you know, it's coming from a holy place within them. There's no question. And we have a spark of it within us. But a spark of it and being the Messiah are two different things. So so anyway, I remember a story. Reb Shlomo said that someone would, used to call him up over a period of time in the middle of the night and say, Shlomo, I'm the Messiah. And it was not the Messiah, okay? So what, you know how Reb Shlomo was. Reb Shlomo was so, was so loving. He was so loving and he understood that on some level, this person was obviously psychologically out of whack, but that, that this belief that he had was giving him strength to go on amidst his, you know, illness. So Reb Shlomo being Reb Shlomo doesn't want to take away hope from him, but at the same time, he doesn't want to give him positive reinforcement, which is just going to you know, aid and abet his illness. So what does Reb Shlomo do? So I remember, he told this in Shul one time. And he said, so he said, so this is what I said to him. I said, brother, I know you're the Messiah. And you know you're the Messiah. But the world is not ready to know that you're the Messiah yet. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? He said, so you have to just keep it to yourself. I mean, how amazing, how, how loving and, and wise are those words? He didn't take, away it, take it away from him, but at the same time, he found a way to reassure him and neutralize him. Amazing, amazing. That's a Rebbe. That's a Rebbe. That's a Rebbe. Okay. So Moshe says, I'm going to have to prove myself. I'm going to have to like, stand before all the elders of Israel, and they're going to want some proof. And, and God is ready. And he tells them, Ehiya asher Ehiya sent you. From now on, I'll say Ekiya. So this is a very exalted divine name, extremely exalted divine name. And it's translated as 
I will be what I will be. And this divine name is correlating with the top three of the ten spherot, okay? So it's like really beyond. But if you look in the Rashi, what that means is God was telling Moshe, tell them that I will be with them in this exile, just like he will be with you in future exiles. And Moshe's like, what? You want me to tell them that you're taking them out of Egypt, but that, that this isn't the end, that they're going to be future exiles? You know, another story that I heard from Reb Shlomo is he said he heard this from a survivor who was liberated from Auschwitz. And this survivor told Reb Shlomo that the most heartbreaking thing he experienced at Auschwitz was when he was saved. I think, wait a second. When he was saved, that was, that was the most heartbreaking day. You know why? He said, because he saw Russian soldiers and it wasn't the Mashiach. And he thought to himself, we went through this and it's not Mashiach? Can you imagine? So, so this, this is a very real mindset. This is real. Moshe is saying to God, there's going to be future exiles? No. If you want me, this has to be, this has to be the last one. So then Hashem says, okay, then just tell them Ekiah sent you. And God leaves out the Asher Ekiah, which is interesting, which seems to suggest that, all right, Moshe, the final redemption is in play. It's in play. Interesting. Let's go on to the next moment, because this narrative about the names of God just gets even deeper. And now we're turning to chapter 3, verse 15. God then says to Moshe, you must then say to the Israelites, Yud Vavke, the holiest name of God, is now in play. And maybe Moshe has been effective in terms of lobbying God, that this shouldn't just be another stop on the road, but, but this has to be it. So God has now just revealed his highest, holiest name. And now he gives like this little P.S. This is my Shmi, and this is my Zichri. This is my name, and this is my remembrance. Now, why is God making a commentary on his name? So the Zohar says, Shmi is Gematria 350. Now, if you add Yud and He to 350, you get 365, which is the number of Lotases, thou shalt not, negative commandments in the Torah. Zichri is 237. Now, if you add Vavhe to that, 11, you get 248, which is the number of positive commandments there are in the Torah. Which means that if you add Shemi and Zechri with Yudke 
and Vav K, you get to 613 commandments. And so God is saying, this is my name and this is my remembrance, which means that if you want to activate my name, the Yudke Vavke in this world, do the 613 commandments, which I'm going to bring down, which is what's going on right now. You want to make this the final redemption? That's the power that you have to access. The fire from above, which is going to neutralize the fire from below, which is going to harmonize all of the energies of this world and fix Gvura, the ultimate sweetening of the din. And everything is going to come together. And you are going to be partners in perfecting the world with me, says God. I am breaking down my name in terms of practicality for you right now. This Yudke Vavke, this divine name is not just an idea It's not just an idea floating around. No, it's been revealed within the 613 commandments. And by accessing those, you are going to access my name and reveal the oneness of God through all the worlds. So now, Moshe says, but when I show up, they're not going to believe me. All right, now we're going to take it to a whole new place. Okay? Because what happens right now is like unbelievable. God says, let's go, I'll tell you where we are. All right? Okay, now, chapter 4, verse 2. Moshe says, they're not going to believe me. And God says, what's that in your hand? And Moshe says, a staff. And God says, throw it to the ground. And when Moshe throws it to the ground, it turns into a snake. And Moshe runs away from it. Do you know why Moshe ran away from it? Because it turned into the snake from the Garden of Eden. <laughs> it turned into the original Nachash from the Garden of Eden. And now what we have here is something unbelievable. We have a playing out of Adam and Chava at the tree of knowledge, and this time not listening to the snake. Right? Because ultimately, everything goes back to that event, to the Garden of Eden. To are we going to do the right thing? Or are we going to do the wrong thing? And now all of a sudden it's thrown a little, not just a little, but an overwhelming amount of temptation. Are we going to do the right thing or are we going to do the wrong thing? And let me model it like this. On the one hand, you have the tree of life. And that's the Torah. Remember, the Torah is called the Eitz Chaim, the tree of life. That's the Torah. Are we going to go with the Torah? The Eitz Chaim, the tree of life? Or are we going to go with the snake? Which is it going to be? And that's exactly what's being acted out here right now. God says, what's that in your hand? And guess what? It just happens to be a piece of wood. (laughs) It's the Eitz Chaim. It's the tree of life. And God says, throw it to the ground. And guess what it becomes? The tree of life becomes the snake. 
And guess what Moshe does? He runs away from the snake. He doesn't listen to the snake. Is that amazing? Is that amazing? The rectifications that are going on here. And then God says, pick up the snake by its tail. And Moshe picks it up by its tail and it turns back into the tree of life, into a stick. Now listen to this. Do you know why the tail of the snake? Because that, that means the end of the exile. Because the snake equals the exile. And the tail of the snake means the end of days. And when we grasp our Yetzirahs, when we grasp our negativity, right? By the tail. Whenever we do it, it will be by the tail. That will be synonymous with the end of days. And it will turn back into the tree of life. When we sublimate and harness and take our, the fire within us and we turn it from the fire below to the fire above, you know, David Amelech said that I lust for you, God. Uses a derivative of the word taiva, right? Which means that David Amelech has taken his roiling passion and just turned it into the deepest love for God. He's totally sublimated desire, right? That's the soul of Mashiach. So that's the idea that when you grab the snake by the tail, that's the end of days, and then it becomes the staff again. It becomes the tree of life. It becomes the Torah. Everything becomes rectified. And that's an amazing thing. Because remember, this is an answer to the question. The Jews aren't going to believe me. Actually, it wasn't a question. It was the, the rabbis say that Moshe was wrongly and falsely accusing the Jews of a lack of belief that they had, that they had, and that they would have believed him. But nonetheless, God gives this sign for Moshe to do for them. And I want to say the following. You see, maybe, maybe I can return, but but, but can we return? Let me say it again. See, there's, there's a second sign that God then gives Moshe, which is, he says, put your hand in your, in your garment, right, over your chest. Now pull it out. And it becomes saras. It becomes like white, like leprous. And then he says, now put your hand back into your garment and then he pulls it out and it's healed and one of the beautiful things the commentators say really gorgeous is it's like super subtle but just listen carefully when Moshe pulled it out the first time he watched with his eyes as his hand turned white but when he put it in the second time as soon as he pulled it out it was healed in other words, he didn't have, it wasn't parallel. He didn't have to watch for it to become healed. He had to watch for it to become sick. But when he 
pulled it out. The second time when it was healed, it was healed immediately because God brings the healing faster than the sickness. Because the power of healing that God puts into the world is greater than the power of sickness. And it's a very, you have to read the, the, the verses very carefully to, to glean that. But that message is there. And the message to us till this day is Mashiach is going to come. You know, when we learn these things, we have to learn them in the here and now. We can't learn, you know, phenomenally deep ideas about something that happened thousands of years ago. We have to understand that God is talking us to, to today. That God is reassure, reassuring us today that even all of us in the state that we're in, the world, that the state that it's in, that just like Moshe pulls out his hand and it immediately becomes healed, saddles his donkey. And he's with his wife, Zipporah. And we're going to talk about Zipporah now. Because Zipporah is this amazing, holy, phenomenal hero. And she really has like this, this shining moment right now that's, that's about to come up. And, and we really have to give her the, the, the praise and the, and the honor that she deserves because what's going to happen right now is she basically is going to become Chava in the Garden of Eden. She's going to become Eve to Moshe's Adam, but in a rectified way, in an amazing way. So we're, we're going we're gonna to see that play out in a moment. But before that happens, there's another verse, which is just, just super great. And okay, this is now chapter 4, verse 21. And what happens is Moshe and, and, and his children and, and his holy wife, Zipporah, are now going, starting toward Egypt. And Hashem says to Moshe, on your way, to Egypt, on your way back to Egypt, because he's returning back to Egypt after many, many years. See all of the wondrous powers that I've placed in your hand. In other words, God is asking Moshe to visualize all of the miracles that are about to take place. You see, that's that is really interesting because none of them have taken place yet. And now if you want to know where is the source for visualization in Torah, in the five books, here it is. We know in terms of modern psychology and modern medicine that it's very healing to visualize success before you go into a, into a competitive game, like in sports, before you go into, say, a, a meeting where you have to make a, a sales pitch, right? Before you, you do your medical treatment, whatever it is, it's very, very important to visualize success. 
Visualize health. Very important. Where do we see it in the Torah? Right here. God says to Moshe, see, uses the word see, like see with your eyes. See all of the miracles that are taking place, that are about to take place. But they haven't taken place yet. That's the point. That's the point. And now, you ready for part two? It gets even better. Because after God says that to him, he says, you're going to use them against Pharaoh. But I'm going to make him obstinate, and he's not going to allow the people to leave. See, God is giving us the real skill set of how to visualize. You don't just visualize success. You visualize success by how you are going to overcome obstacles. That's the idea. God doesn't just say, hey, it's going to be great. Just visualize that it's going to be great. That's not what God says. God says, visualize all the miracles and how Paro is going to be obstinate and is going to try to just wipe you out. That's part of the visualization also. And then with that mindset, then we can achieve. Okay. Now enter Zipporah. Zipporah, unbelievable, 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 unbelievable. And the, the Medrash says that she was as holy as Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. You know, so we have to just have such covered and such just, just respect, just respect and honor for Zipporah. Now, you want to hear a wild medrash? You ready for a wild medrash here? It says, the medrash Talpio says that Batya, remember, who's Batya? That's Paro's daughter who saves Moshe from the Nile. And the Gomorrah says, you ready for this? That Batya was going to convert to Judaism that that's why she was going to the Nile, to take a mikvah to become Jewish. So at that moment, she finds the Redeemer. Can you imagine? But now listen to this. You know, who is, who is Tzipporah's father? Tzipporah's father is Yitro. Who is Yitro? Yitro was one of the main advisors to Paro. Okay? It says Paro had three main advisors. One of them was the wicked Bilam, who said, kill the Jews, wipe them out. One of them was Job Eov, who said nothing. And because he said nothing, when he suffered, God said nothing. Very heavy, right? And then you have Yitra. And Yitra said, what are you doing? What are you doing, Paro? And he stood up for the Jews. And because he stood up for the Jews, Paro exiled him. And so now he's gone from like the top, 
spiritual advisor in Egypt to this person who's like in the Midian desert. Okay? But guess where Moshe shows up when he escapes Para? He shows up at Yitro's tent. And guess who Moshe marries? Zipporah, one of Yitro's daughters. Okay. So now listen to this. The Medrash says that one day, Paro and Yitro were in the, I guess, the marketplace. And there were two orphan girls who were twins. And do you know who those two orphan girls who were twins? And they weren't just twins. They were beautiful, beautiful girls. That was Batya, the one who saves Moshe. And that was Zipporah, the one who marries Moshe. They were twin sisters. Now again, every medrash is true. <laughs> but what level is it true on? What level is it true on? Were they actually twin sisters? Maybe they were. Maybe they were. But I think on a deeper level, what the medrash is trying to tell us is that they were both phenomenally righteous. They were, they were righteous. They were equally righteous with each other. Just like Batya went against her father, who was like the, 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 the secular king of the world, and, and brings a Jew who, like he's like, is trying to wipe them out into the palace to raise as her son. Like, can you imagine who Batya was? Whatever you think of Batya, that's what Zipporah was as well. That Zipporah was also phenomenally holy. Okay. Now here comes her shining moment. Because we've got a verse now coming up here, which is just like, again, it's wild. Like, like how are we to understand this? Okay, so now this is chapter 4, verse 24. When they were in the place, remember, they're now on their way back to Egypt. When they were in the place where they spent the night along the way, God confronted Moshe and wanted to kill him. What? What are you talking about? What has just been going on? Like, M Moshe is the, is, is the Redeemer. We just had the whole thing by the by the burning bush. We just had all the signs and wonders and visualize all the miracles that you're going to do. And, and then a few hours later, it says God wanted to kill Moshe. And again, this is a verse in the Torah itself. This is not a medrash. This is in the Torah itself. And now we're ready for maybe the wildest medrash yet. How did God try to kill him? So it says a serpent came down and swallowed Moshe down to his bris, meaning like, you know, below his waist, right, right at his waistline. This snake 
completely swallowed Moshe and is about to kill him. And Sipporah is blessed with divine insight. And she sees this since the snake is right at where Moshe's circumcision is, his bris. Sipporah understands, ah, there's a mitzvah that needs to be done that hasn't been done yet, which is our son hasn't had a bris yet. He hasn't been circumcised yet. And so immediately she takes out this sharp stone. She cuts off the orla on her son, that extra piece of skin. And then all of a sudden Moshe is saved. The snake goes away. Now what is going on there? So on Shabbos, Hashem blessed me with this way of understanding it. First of all, you have to understand the significance of what an orla is. Every single person, man and woman, has an orla around their hearts. When we talk about our hearts being closed, when we talk about there being a separation between the mind and the heart, that, that orla, that blockage, that whatever, that skin around our heart, that fatty deposit, that klipa, what, however you want to say it, around our heart, which stops us from really being an integrated personality, that stops us from really being just like one with God, one with the world, one with our mission, one with ourselves. That's an orla that all of us have. But I'll tell you something else. And now we're going back to the Piskei Sharm. You see, the way the Or HaChaim describes the world before we eat from the tree of knowledge was that the world was like a two-story house and human beings could go upstairs and downstairs at will. Meaning to say, human beings, we were like these creatures of light and we could elevate to the heavens and come down below, right? The, the Medrash says that Adam Rishon, what was his height? 100 Amos. Do you know what that is? That, that means Adam was the size of a skyscraper. Like, how do we understand these things, right? Because he was a creature of light. What happened when we ate from the tree of knowledge and we went against God, is all of a sudden God then became very concealed in this world. Equally present, God is equally present in this world, but now concealed. You have to look to find him. He's there. He's everywhere you look, but you have to look to find him. So now all of a sudden, this two-story house that the Orchayim talks about, where you could just go upstairs and downstairs, all of a sudden... That second floor, so to speak, gets locked. There's now the ceiling, right? Now there's the heavens, if you will. There's a blow and above that wasn't there before, this barrier. You know what that barrier is? An orla. When we ate from the tree of knowledge, we created this Orla, 
separating this world from the next world. And do you know what else we did? All of that heavenly light coming down, now all of a sudden is blocked. And some filters through. Some filters through. This Fasema says every time that you actually perform a bris on a, on a little child today, that the cutting of the orla below makes a hole in the orla above. So that just like you're, you're doing that, some more light is coming down into the world that wasn't coming down into the world before. Okay? But that orla still is very much in place. Now listen to this. Let's now look at that whole situation of Moshe going into Egypt with Zipporah and now the snake coming back and the orla getting cut. You see what it is? Listen very, very, very carefully right now. We've got Moshe and Zipporah fixing Adam and Chava. Not only are they not listening to the snake, but they're actively fighting the snake. Not only are they not listening to the snake and allowing it to stop them in terms of their ability to do God's will, which is to move forward and to get to Egypt to free the Jews, but Zipporah is cutting the orla. This orla below is rectifying the orla above that happened when we ate from the tree of knowledge. She's cutting right through it. And now the first light is going to begin to start shining of the fire from above, the Torah from above, which is going to start coming down as they start going into Egypt to get the Jews out to Mount Sinai so that the whole fire from above, the fire that doesn't burn, the fire that only heals, the fire that only balances, the Torah is going to come down now. And what we've got played out here is the beginning of the puncturing of that great Orla and the beginning of the light coming down to redeem the entire world. In terms of getting rid of the Orla, the Eretz says something very interesting, that one of the things that just sort of like melts it away are the tears from our eyes. Like when we cry, when we cry holy tears, you know, there are different types of tears. Some tears are tears of just giving up. That, that doesn't do much for us. But there are the tears that come from just wanting to draw close. And that, that level, because it's really, those tears are a manifestation that, that it's coming from the deepest part of ourselves. Rob Frimmer says that it's like those, those tears just sort of like melt away the orla. So why didn't Moshe circumcise his son beforehand? There are a few answers. One, he was concerned for the health of the child because they were traveling. 
During the 40 years in the desert, the Jewish people didn't circumcise themselves because it was dangerous. The, the winds and the sand could get into the incision and infect a person. And so for 40 years, we didn't do it, which is sort of surprising, but that's, that's true. There's a teaching that Moshe was instructed not to from Yitro. And then there's an explanation that I don't know if this is my explanation or if I came across it somewhere, but Moshe was in a hurry to do God's will and to redeem the Jews and felt like that was the number one priority. And here we see that every mitzvah is very, very precious and valuable, and we don't know which mitzvah is more precious than another mitzvah. And so as a mitzvah comes to you, you have to do that mitzvah because it's being given to you. God is running the whole world and God knows what he's doing. And if he's putting a mitzvah opportunity in front of you, that's a sign that it's for you right now. And so that means that really Moshe made a mistake in this explanation of prioritizing something big over something that he thought was small. So there are no small mitzvahs, basically. Every mitzvah is big. So perhaps Moshe thought, well, I've got to save the entire Jewish people. This mitzvah can win. And that is a calculus that I think someone very holy and well-intentioned could make. But we see that it was not the, the right decision. But Sipporah knew. Sipporah knew. But it says, the teaching that I found says that it came through divine inspiration that she knew to do the, the bris. So in other words, if it had to come through divine inspiration, it wasn't so obvious to anyone in the moment. That's the point. But why should it have uh, had lethal implications? God says God wanted to kill him, right? Why should you know, wipe that level? Right. Now remember, there's only one power in the world. As much as we talk about the Yetzirah, as much as we talk about the snake, there is only one power in the world, and that's God. So, so, you know, Rabbi Nachman says that when a Jew wants to come close to God, that, you know what they say in heaven? They say, let's see. Let's see if the person really wants to come close. And so the person is presented with a test. And, you know, to the American mind, that's so counterintuitive because... You think that, oh, I want to I wanna do some more mitzvahs. Like, you expect everyone to throw a party for you, right? Like, you know, yay, right? Like, you don't expect that the, that the answer from heaven is, okay, let's see. Let's see if you really want to do more mitzvahs. But, but that's, that is the way it works. Because everything is like this divine energy balance. And there are forces and counterforces. And if you want to put more light into the world, well, then the pressure is going to assert itself from the other side. And now you're going to have to actually make an effort if you actually want to lift up the entire world. And, you know, mitzvahs are called avodas Hashem. Avoda means work. It means holy work. It means holy work. So, 
to answer your question, Moshe is now going to Egypt as instructed by God. But that doesn't mean there aren't going to be tests. In fact, this is the first of many tests along the way for Moshe. Many tests. And it comes first and foremost as the snake that wants to wipe him out. You see, Moshe could have said to Zipporah, after she saves the day, oh, that's a divine sign that God doesn't want us to do this anymore. <laughs> right? Moshe never says it. Moshe says, aha. All right, if we're going to do the redemption, we're going to be encountering some gnarly forces. And here's the first. Right? And again, how do we understand that midrash? Was there a giant snake that wrapped itself around the top of Moshe's body? Maybe. We're about to start getting into the ten plagues where the most wild stuff starts happening. So why shouldn't there be a giant snake that tries to swallow Moshe? Or it could mean that they encountered something that was unbelievably negative along the way, that stopped them in their tracks and almost killed them. And this is the visual that the rabbis ascribe to that, because obviously, if there's going to be a force that's going to try to stop the redemption right now, it must be the energy of the snake from the Garden of Eden, which is stopping the redemption. Do you understand how these things work in terms of these explanations? It could be a snake, but it's true either way. Because what it's talking about is them encountering this brick wall, trying to stop them, and them refusing to let it stop them. And then after they get through it, due to Sapora, they don't run away. They keep moving forward. That's incredible. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up. But let me just review one point. First, God says to Moshe, tell them that Ekia, Asher Ekia, the one who is with you in this exile and in future exiles is with you. And then God says, no. Tell them Yudke Vavke, Shmi V'zeh Zichri. This is my name. And this is my remembrance. And remember what the Zohar says. Shmi, you add yud hey to that and you get 365. Zuchri, you add 11 to that. That's the vav hey, And you get 248. You add that up and it's 613. My name will become realized. You want this to be the final redemption? My name will become realized through your keeping of the Torah. My oneness will be revealed. And that's the message for all of us right now today. And just like Moshe pulls out his hand the second time, God gives him that second sign. And it's already healed. It's already healed. Our generation in our world can also be already healed. It's just, let's just pump out the fire from above, okay? You know, we have to make sure that 
our Gevorah, the Gevorah that we're putting into the world when we're trying to do the right thing, that we're not biting. Reb Shlomo used to talk about people who, you know, they're, they're trying to be holy, and what are they doing? They're just going around biting each other. Right? Let's do it with a fire from above, the fire that doesn't burn. The fire that just balances and just illuminates. And we can do that. We can all do that together. And it's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. And it can happen at any moment. I, I often think that when Mashiach comes, that the history of the world is going to be rewritten. And we're going to look back on all of the events of the world and things that seem like, you know, like big headlines are, are going to disappear in importance. And we're going to see little events that probably we never knew about, like some, I don't know, sick mom getting out of bed, you know, and making lunch for her kids before they, you know, they go to school and, and like acts of heroism that were never known we're going to see world history through the events that actually brought the end of days and the redemption. A light is going to be shined on like what the real story of humanity actually was. And, you know, there will be obviously the, 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 the dark moments, but these like sort of like celebrity gossip moments which somehow rule the headlines are going to vanish because they they have no consequence the light is going to shine on this dark room and we're going to realize it's the most beautiful treasure house of activities and we never knew about them but that's where we were living the whole time and so so yeah when you see these good moments this is just the tip of the iceberg of what's really going on and what's really has been going on since the beginning of time. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life and review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.